1: This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd.
2: Well,
3: hello. Hello. You're speaking to us live from COP27.
2: I am. COP27 is missing you, by the way. It's, so have you gone
3: on your own? How do you mean? I'm just wondering if you had a plus one. Is anybody there with you? Because there was a tweet... Johnny Casey tweeted me to say, just saw Ed at COP27, but not true to form. He just said hello whilst power walking on. Jeff Lloyd, have you been influencing him to stop chatting to everyone he meets? I'll put it down to his aide dragging him to a meeting. So it seems like you did have a plus one then.
2: You know what? Um, I've had lots of people saying nice things about the podcast, including people from the British government. Fantastic. I wouldn't name them and sort of embarrass them, but
3: are we talking mandarins here? Are we talking Eminon Screes? I mean,
2: I, I think it'll have to remain mysterious.
3: Well, big shout out to you in the corridors of power there. Yeah, do you think Simon Steele listens to it?
2: How do you know Simon Steele?
3: Big, big fan. Big fan. Secretary of the uh, UN Climate Change Conference.
2: Executive secretary. You're very. That's, you're very well informed these <laughs> days.
3: I heard him on the radio talk about loss and damage the other day and I thought he was very good on it, actually.
2: It's because you're on my favourite programme this week, aren't you?
3: I was. It'll, it will have aired by the time people hear this. So if you listen to it on Monday, it was last night. I did Pick of the Week on Radio 4. I thought, oh, I'll do that again because uh, Ed likes it. It's a little treat for Ed to hear my voice on it. But, of course, you're, you're at COP, so you won't hear it.
2: No, I, 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 will, I will definitely listen to it. So do you want to know about what's happening at COP?
3: Yes, tell, tell me all about it. So you arrived on Friday?
2: arrived on Friday and we're speaking on Sunday we'll have more on COP in next week's podcast Glasgow was the COP where a lot was invested in improving the targets and all that. Do you remember at the end of Glasgow there was this one year ratchet where where countries were supposed to, I'm going to get the bad news out of the way and now I'm going to go into the better news but you remember the countries were supposed to come back and improve their targets
3: I do yeah, yeah, strengthen pledges and all that yes.
2: Yeah and that hasn't Basically, I mean, that is a bit like you haven't done your homework, so can you bring in next week? The homework's never going to be that good the following week, is it? I mean, why is the homework going to be really good the week after it was supposed to be handed in? So I'm afraid the bad news is, in terms of the UN, that we're heading for 2.8 degrees of warming. Clearly, as you mentioned earlier, in terms of Simon Steele, the whole issue of finance and loss and damage is a big part of the formal negotiations. I think the sense of Glasgow made a lot of big promises and they haven't really been kept is quite strong. Okay, that's the sort of downside. I suppose the upside is I'm increasingly influenced by the idea that – it's not my phrase this, but I may have said it to you before, but – it's cheaper to save the planet than to destroy it in the sense of renewable energy being a lot cheaper than fossil fuels.
3: Yes, it's your big catchphrase at the moment. It wouldn't pass the Bruce Forsyth catchphrase test, but I I, I like it as an idea.
2: Well, he could have said it's cheaper to save the planet than, and then everyone could have shouted out, (laughs) destroy it. Don't you think?
3: Yeah, Okay. now I'm hearing it in his voice.
2: I had this really interesting uh, roundtable organised by the British Council with uh, young people from, among other countries, Sri Lanka... Nepal, and Fiji. Fiji is the third most vulnerable country. According to the representative from Fiji, 67% of the population is at risk from climate change. Oh, God. 248 communities are going to have to be already, they are planning for their displacement. It's terrible. Um, because it's Fiji is a whole selection of islands, many of which are under threat. Mm. And so, for them, the issue of loss and damage and how they're going to be helped with the vulnerabilities they're facing, and this is about the vulnerabilities countries are facing now. Yeah. You know, this is about a country like Fiji and their ability to cope with that. But but the thing I was going to say was that whole conversation is very fraught and difficult about how countries are going to be helped. Countries like Fiji, it is interesting though when you talk about renewables and. The lower cost energy future for countries that gets universal sort of acceptance. I'm not saying that gets rid of all the other issues, but I think that is my note of optimism. I've been here talking to other countries, like was, had a meeting with the Danish climate envoy about we've got this pledge to have zero carbon power by 2030. Like Labour and I was talking to him. He's they've also got zero carbon power by 2030, and we're talking to him about how if we're in government, how we can be an alliance working with other countries. I think Kenya also has committed to a zero carbon power system by 2030. You know, how you can build an alliance. And the quite exciting thing about this is you can then build an alliance which will cut the costs of renewables further because the more renewables are used and deployed, the more the costs go down. You know, that can help countries across the world.
3: So you're hearing some sort of bleak realities, but there's an optimism in the forms of cooperation that are being imagined and discussed.
2: I think there's two things heading in opposite directions, which is the damage is much more apparent. All of these young people said, yeah, we are facing consequences which nobody in our country has seen before. It's much more intense, much more difficult. So the science, the impact of climate change is so much greater. And at the same time, our solutions to cutting emissions are so much more apparent complicated issues of adaptation, how countries adapt to the damage that is being done to them. That's all very difficult and complicated. And the finance question is difficult. There is also an agenda, maybe we'll talk about this next week. There's an interesting agenda. Mia Motley, the uh, prime minister of Barbados, has been pushing this agenda around reform of the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund to help with these issues of loss and damage. And I think that has gained traction. I think this also, and maybe I said this the other day, I think I'd make this observation, which is Rishi Sunak didn't want to come, but he did come. And I think that says something about the importance of climate in Britain and that you can't just sort of sit it out.
3: Let's hope so. And let's hope it doesn't just say something about the internal politics of the Conservative Party with Boris Johnson turning up and trying to upstage him. Maybe, maybe. And when you were in Glasgow, you were telling us all about a a corridor like that you'd like to go and sit in. Have you found a little ed spot this time round?
2: The British Pavilion I've been sitting in.
3: The British Pavilion sounds like something yeah. from a Merchant Ivory drama. <laughs> well, shall we talk about what we're talking about? We thought it was important to stay climate focused, yeah. given that you're at the COP.
2: Well, we're going to be talking about the role of individuals in making change happen on climate. And we're going to be talking about it in a number of different senses, because there's this big debate about is tackling the climate crisis about simply what individuals do? Is it about what government does or is it, as I think most people would think, about both but then what's the role of each what can individuals do um and and we're going to be covering this from a whole range of different angles uh, we're going to be speaking to Alyssa Gilbert from the Grantham Institute for Climate Change about what governments can do but also the interaction with individuals Mike Thompson from the Climate Change Committee who in a sense quantifies some of what's going to be required and then Tom Bailey from an organization called Take the Jump And they're pushing six shifts that they're recommending for people to make a difference.
3: So what's your reason to be cheerful then?
2: Well, my reason to be cheerful is fairly obvious, but I think it's nevertheless uh, worth noting, which is the Democrats doing better in the midterm elections than expected. Mm. Don't you think it could have been a lot worse?
3: Oh, absolutely I could. And I noticed a compulsion in myself, and you see it in other people, To watch American news as if you're watching a a Netflix drama and just expect really dramatic plot twists.
2: Key race alert. Yes, yeah. You've put it into words better than I can, but it's, and it's also like the way it's drawn out. Yeah. So it's it's like a sort of cliffhanger. And just as we're speaking yesterday, Nevada was called for the Democrats. So they've they've retained control of the Senate even without the Georgia runoff. But even the idea of the Georgia runoff is almost like it could be a cliffhanger. It's like the sort of the show's producers have been slightly frustrated because it's all going to be over before Georgia. My kids quite love watching CNN. Maybe it doesn't surprise you. It is all presented in quite a sort of razzmatazz, key race alert, wolf blitzer, <laughs> Do you know
3: what I mean? Can I just check? They have heard of CBBC, haven't they? Yeah,
2: they're beyond CBBC. <laughs> In fact, actually, one of them, I will tell you, let you into a secret, and you'll think I'm, a, I'm not a great parent. One of them insisted on waking up at 4.30 to watch the results.
3: Wow. The cycle
2: continues. Right, what's your reason to be cheerful?
3: My reason to be cheerful is the pumpkin spice latte. I always enjoy its brief appearance at this time of year. Uh, to be fair, that's
2: more important than the American election. <laughs>
3: Sarah makes fun of me for drinking them. She says it's like something a child would drink. In fact, she she had a, a memory of me ordering one on our honeymoon and thinking, great, so I've married a baby then. I, th- I think
2: that it's a lovely festive autumnal drink. You know, it's interesting. The impact of those calorie things being on the board coffee shops. I've, I've, I've dumped the cappuccino in favour of the Americano, just so you know.
3: Interesting. I have started going to small independent cafes that don't have to display the calories.
1: Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd.
2: To start our conversation today, I'm delighted to say that we're joined by Alyssa Gilbert, who is Director of Policy and Translation at the Grantham Institute for Climate Change and the Environment at Imperial College. Is it Director of Policy and Transition or Translation?
1: It's translation, where translation it is actually translation. Means, yeah, yeah, it is. Translation means translating things in the academic world into language that can be useful to people not in the academic world policymakers, businesses, public.
2: <laughs> there I was thinking I was making a mistake. Now, Alyssa, you're joining us live from COP. Um, I think you're in the area where the Wi Fi works. Is that right?
1: Yeah, that's right. There's a a distinct corridor here out of the sun and where there seems to be a a solid connection.
2: Okay, so that's the background noise we might hear. Alyssa, let's start the conversation, and this is a very broad question, but just to situate our conversation, what do you see as the broad role of individuals – in terms of action on climate?
1: Individuals are important because everything we do about climate at the end of the day, we have to buy into as individual people, right? So, you know, the technology could be available but we gotta choose to use it. The choices that we make are in a way at the heart of us being willing to adopt a kind of different kind of clean approach to living. But a very important part of the role of the public is to actually influence people who can change our infrastructure and then this virtuous circle, right? People can change our infrastructure and enable us to make better decisions as well. So we really need to make our voices heard and make it clear to people that we care about these issues and that we're willing to participate when we're given the opportunity.
2: So what do you see as the role of individual behavior, individuals making choices in their own lives? as opposed to individuals putting pressure on governments? Because often the way this is portrayed is, you know, what are the things you particularly as an individual should be doing to help tackle the climate crisis? Now, is that the right way of thinking about it? Is it one way of thinking about it? How do you see that?
1: I think it's not either or. Individuals shouldn't feel this pressure that that it's all down to us. It's a combination. As an individual, you try and do everything that you can and that that might be small things or it might be that you're already doing things and the things that you do is talk to other people about those things that you're doing it doesn't need to be always a big change in your life so that's important thing to do and then the other part of it is using your voice and your influence and you know I want to emphasize that again using your voice isn't always to decision makers it's also to the people that you know to your friends and your family because that's actually really influential to change systems is for other people to hear from people that they trust that you You've chosen to make a decision and you're making a difference.
2: And I think something important that you said in your opening answer is that governments and I guess businesses can do things to make it easier for people to make low carbon choices. You know, sometimes the way you might think about this is is, structural change makes possible individual change. Talk to us a little bit, if you would, about that.
1: Yeah, so I mean, a good example about that is a change we've seen in the UK over the past few decades, right? If you plug something into, you know, the electricity socket in your wall, it's now much less carbon intensive than it used to be. Because all of the things that are creating electricity in the UK have shifted away from coal, we now use almost no coal, towards a mix of renewables and natural gas, which are, you know, better for the environment. That means that you are enabled as an individual to actually do many of the things you did before. And without realizing it, you're having less of an impact on the environment. Similarly, if you go to a shop and you're lucky enough to be able to afford to buy an appliance, your appliance will have a rating next to it. And that gives you information about how efficient your appliance is. That helps you make the choice to buy an appliance that has less of an impact on the environment. That's another structural thing. And that's put in place because government has a regulatory system that says, okay, every appliance that's sold has to gradually become more efficient. And it also has to tell you about its efficiency.
2: I think that what strikes me about this debate is rather than sort of lecturing people about making the right choices, we should give them the incentives that the role of government is to make it possible for them to do it. So it's not simply a kind of rich person's choice to buy an electric vehicle. Yeah,
1: exactly. So there's there's lots of enabling things that the government can do to incentivize people to make those choices. And some of those things actually, you know, they do start with the wealthiest people. That's OK, but there should be something in place for everybody.
2: And talk to us a little bit about why being vocal about your choices or putting pressure on governments, because that's not necessarily the thing that we think about when we think about the role of the individual. It tends to be more about individual behavior. Why are those things important?
1: Okay, well, there are a few things. I mean, I I shouldn't be speaking to you about politics, but politicians like to know that someone's going to vote for them. And actually... They don't always hear that this issue is important to people. In fact, they won't know it's important to you unless you tell them. So you must tell them. And you've got to tell them when they're not doing something. But you should also tell them when they do make a decision, because otherwise they don't see any positive like reward feedback. And you know, in general, if one person is complaining, then actually there's hundreds of people who didn't complain but feel the same way. It's also true in the private sector. So if you're a consumer, if you're buying a product and you're not happy with its environmental performance, then let that company know. They'll be worried because you're their business, right? And the final part of it is that there's quite a bit of evidence, um, as I said earlier, that by making your voice heard to other people around you, those people who trust you the most, they'll be willing to consider or make a change as well. And that's really important because that starts the ball rolling, this momentum. I think some of the evidence around, let's say, for example, people deciding to adopt PVs is that it's clustered and it's clustered by neighbors and neighborhoods. Um, this and, is, in
2: other words, um, uh, full of on, yeah, the, on the roof. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you've so got the put panels. solar power
1: on your roof and that's yeah. a good example of something that wealthier individuals yeah. might be able to do um, or, you know, housing developers can yeah. also do this. But the evidence is that it's clustered. So neighbors are influenced by their neighbors. So that shows that actually speaking to your neighbors or also leading by example, so doing something that's very visible like that can can make a difference, and there has also been some evidence, some research done in 2019, and, and by people like the Green Alliance and climate action groups, that people are more willing to take action and do their bit if they feel that everyone's doing their bit, um, and so then again, that means that if people have heard that you're doing something, that gives them the sense that oh yeah, look, some other people are doing stuff. All right, yeah, I'm going to do it.
2: That's a really important point, Alyssa, isn't it? That sometimes we think you know the the answer is to say the climate's going to hell. Nobody's doing anything. You need to do X. In fact, the, all of the research says the opposite is true, which is saying to people, lots of people are doing solar panels or whatever else it is. You could too is a much better way of influencing people. Yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. There's this, quite a bit of a discussion now about how do people reduce the greenhouse gas emissions from their heat. So you've got this technology, heat pumps, but they're not nearly as common now as solar panels. Um, and so actually, you know, people who are putting them in should be inviting their friends around and showing them and, and making them feel that their house is comfortable because otherwise people don't really trust it or they don't understand. It's, it's a risk otherwise.
2: We're talking about what governments can enable people to do. What about when governments do things which seem at odds with their rhetoric about climate. We've had a debate in Britain, it's ongoing actually, about whether the government might open a new coal mine here, for, for example. What impact does that have?
1: It can have an extremely negative impact. We've seen that you know members of the public, lots of people who really care about climate change, and they actually want to do something about it, willing to do something about it. But one of the things that's most important about that action is they want things to be fair. And that fairness does not just extend to other people or or to their own personal treatment. It extends to all actors being trustworthy and serious about action within their own scope as well. So that concept of fairness, which is a difficult one to grasp hold of, is actually at the heart of also securing individuals to take commitments.
2: What's the evidence on the role of of activism in shifting government action?
1: Yeah, so there's continuing ongoing work about the role of activism, because there's a few different schools of thought. One school of thought is that, you know, activists, when they present a a position that might be a more extreme sense of urgency, allow a space for other people who are presenting what might be perceived as more moderate, it gives them more space and allows them more impact. But then there's also a school of thought that says, if the activism isn't well received by many people, it can lead to a backlash. You know, and we've seen examples of that very recently, um, where you've got a backlash. But we've seen some evidence of, of, you know, positive impact, and that did enable a much bigger public conversation, which actually did lead, I think, to more support for actions.
2: Now we have a thing on the podcast called the Jeffocracy, which is uh, supposedly our utopia. Jeff is uh, not here, but I think he'd want me to ask this question in his absence. If you wanted to do something. On this question of enabling people to make better choices, what's, what would your first act or first few acts be, do you think?
1: Um, Okay, so two two things would be my first thing. My very first thing would be about energy efficiency and our building stock. So I think I would just immediately put into place an emergency program to retrofit all of the houses in the UK and all of the buildings. I think we can do it. It would create jobs and it would create long-term savings for everyone who lives in the UK and reduce our dependence on fossil fuels. So that is the first thing I would do. And it would enable people of all economic groups to live in a way that's more environmentally friendly and, and actually better for them. And the second thing is I would enable people to find a platform on which they could speak better to each other about the changes that they're making so we can identify what barriers there are to their action so i've had this idea which is not activism um, rather than activists i want to enable people to be actionist and what i think an actionist is, yeah. is somebody who takes does everything that they can do and they talk about it, but they reach a barrier and then they're able to tell somebody, a policymaker, why they can't do more. So that might be someone who says, I've bought an electric vehicle, but I'd like to take public transport. And in the area I live in the country, I don't have any public transport. So help me make the switch.
2: Do you think we do that at the moment? That's a really interesting point. I mean, is that, does that happen?
1: I don't think so. I think that people share in pockets what they're doing with each other. So that's good. As I said, that's a really positive thing to do. But it, it's not very easy to get this sense of what are your Neighbors or the other people in the city, what do they want specifically? And I think that at the moment, the government kind of takes an attitude that's almost like nobody wants to change what they do or that changing what people do is necessarily bad or difficult, but it might not be. It's just different. So, this assumption that people don't want to do something different underlies a lot of this kind of attitude that we have a laissez faire attitude and we don't put in incentives for people to change. So, we're not really regularly taking stock of people's willingness and desire to do things in a different way.
2: Well, look, that is a really interesting thought. And hopefully some of our listeners might be prompted to try and set this mechanism up or or direct us to something similar that might exist. Alyssa Gilbert, Director of Policy and Translation at Grantham, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thanks so much for having me. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring.
3: With us now is Mike Thompson, who is Chief Economist and Director of Analysis at the Climate Change Committee. Hello, Mike.
4: Hi, Jeff. Lovely to be back. It's
3: good to have you back again. The first thing I want to ask you about really is what proportion of carbon emissions are within the scope of us as individuals, as consumers or as households? I think I've heard it said before that it's it's kind of roughly a third down to governments, a, a third down to business and industry, and a third down to individuals. Is, is that about right?
4: Yeah, I mean, the facetious answer, I guess, is that all of it is down to us as individuals. Ultimately, everything comes back to, to us as as consumers and as householders. You know, every, Everything is an individual at, at the end of the day. We've done a bit of a, a cut, actually, at, at the Climate Committee of the things that we need to do to get to net zero. How much of that is about things that are just our individual choices? That might be things like eating less meat, things like choosing not to fly, cycling instead of driving, that kind of stuff. We think that's about 15%, actually, just those things that, you know, you don't need to switch anything out. We can just change change the activities that, that we engage in. And then there's about another 20%, which are our direct consumption choices. You could choose to buy an electric car, say, instead of a conventional car, install a heat pump in your house instead of a gas boiler, um, those choices for, for individuals as consumers are worth about another 20%. And then you've got about the same again if you start to include, for instance, landlords, you start to include f- fleet vehicles that are, are operated by businesses. And even if you start to get into you know, farmers, do we class some of their activities as individuals or do we class them as businesses? So it, it's not obvious where you draw the line. But if you include all of that, you maybe get to about 60%. And then you're left with 40 which really is just, you know, these are things in the government estate, those are big businesses, switching to low carbon renewables, for instance, behind the meter in the, in the power sector, fitting carbon capture and storage, that kind of stuff. So, you know, as consumers, as individuals, something like half, maybe 60% of, of all, the, all the possibilities lie with us. It's
3: actually more than I suggested, even with that kind of wooliness around the definition of individuals. And it's, it's interesting, you hearing you talk about the different categories of individual behaviour. We talked to George Monbiot a while ago, and he was saying that you've got to treat people like grown-ups. Instead of talking about paper straws, you've you've got to say the situation is dire and it needs big change. On that, how how much do you think people realise that higher impact decisions, you you mentioned flying or plant-based diets, are potentially vital to this.
4: Yeah, I mean, it's such a good point. And I I totally agree with the premise. You know, we do have to treat people like grown-ups. Plastic straws drives me mad as well. You know, when you look at the polling of this, people are actually, they're pretty good in terms of the energy sector. They get that using energy is a carbon-intensive thing. It contributes to climate change. And they they realise that being more careful about that is a helpful thing to do. The one that is really a big gap, and I, you know, this will be one that George I'm sure was was picking on, is about the food system. People don't join up just how important the choices that we make on on food and on diet are for climate in terms of things individuals can do choosing healthier diets, moving faster towards diets with less meat and less dairy in is one of the biggest changes that we can make individually as consumers, that we have the power to do without requiring other other people to change anything. But it isn't rated very highly. If you ask people, what are the big things you can do? It doesn't score very highly at all compared to things like using less energy in the home, the way that we travel, those sorts of things.
3: So it's not necessarily that eating less meat or fish feels like too big an ask, it's that people don't realise the impact it could have. Is that what you're saying?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think you're then getting into the into the next level, actually, and this is the sort of stuff probably we, we could do with understanding better than we do already. Um, what I'm saying is that, you know, if, if you ask people, do you want to do something about climate change? Most people say yes. If you ask them, do you think you can do more? Most people say yes again. But then when you ask them, well, what things matter, they don't tend to pick up on diet as a big thing. So that's kind of the first line. You've got to get them over that. Right. And then you get into, well, are there other barriers that you need to unpick? Are there other things to kind of make them embrace that change? I don't think we're actually even at that point yet because we still haven't got to the point of people properly understanding that shifting away from meat and dairy is positive for the planet as well as for their health. The sorts of scenarios that we talk about at the Climate Committee By 2050, we're talking about a 50% reduction. So this is not overnight, suddenly everyone becomes a vegan. That's not kind of the vision here. But this is a shift towards diets which are better for us and which are better for the planet. And the more that we're all talking about this and we're thinking about it and we're engaged within it, the more likely it is that we'll make the shifts that that we need to see. Let's talk
3: about carbon offsetting schemes. Um, Obviously, they become big business feels a little bit like a, atonement or, so, or something should they really be a significant part of how we reduce our emissions or is it there's some element of kicking it into the long grass
4: yeah yeah you picked on a good a good point for us here. The, the climate committee just put a report out actually on on this on the use of of offsetting and, and voluntary carbon markets as you say they're they're growing actually quite rapidly at the moment a lot of businesses are turning to these in the desire to to claim to be net zero um and the point we've made is actually we don't think the markets really are ready for that growth yet. We don't think that we are in a position where that is making a positive contribution and it risks making a negative contribution. We think there is a possible outcome here where carbon markets are useful. If you look at what's going on at COP at the moment, you know, one of the big problems that we've got is having enough finance flow into emerging and developing markets. Voluntary carbon markets could help with that. But at the moment, the danger is they're used as a fig leaf for companies or individuals not to do things that they ought to be doing. So when you can buy a carbon offset for $3 a tonne, that's how cheap they are at the moment. That is very, very cheap. (laughs) If you can get them as cheap as that, it's very easy to say, well, this thing that looks a bit difficult for us to do as a company or for me to do as an individual, I maybe won't bother with that and I'll just buy some carbon offsets. Instead, it's far too easy to make that kind of choice at the moment. If carbon credits really were going to make a difference, you ought to be looking at a cost much more like maybe 50 plus dollars per tonne. If you got to that point, you could be much more confident that this is a credit which is really doing something useful. It's actually paying for something that wouldn't have happened anyway and that people aren't using them in a way that stops them doing activities they should do anyway. It should be the last thing we reach for, not the first thing.
3: To what extent do you think people's inaction on the climate crisis is related to the fact that we can see it as an inherently political issue? Definitely, to some extent here, but in other parts of the world, even more so, divided along party political lines.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think this this definitely is one of the issues. Is that you know, it's very easy to look around, and this is a global problem, right? This is the function of all of our activities put together across the world. And it's very easy within that to say, well, I'm only one in eight billion I think we're about to hit. What's the point of me doing anything differently? It's very, very easy to make. That. And we've had at the UK level, we've had these arguments that, well, the UK is only one or two percent of global emissions. Why should we do something? And the reality is that it's only by everybody individually <laughs> doing something that the, the mass as a whole moves. But it's, it clearly is disempowering. And I think that goes back to this argument about, well, should the Governments be talking to people? What's that grown up conversation? And I think that is part of it. It's part of it for the government to say, here's why we're acting, right? This is the realities of climate change. We all see it around us. Here's what we as a country and indeed the world is doing about it. This is what we're doing as a government. This is what big businesses are doing. Because again, big businesses are actually doing a lot. And here's your role in it as a consumer. Here are things that you can do so that all of this fits together. Again, going back to that point that, you know, the the majority of people, I think it's around 70%, want to do additional things to help to contribute to tackling climate change. They expect their governments to be doing things as well. They expect businesses to be doing things. But if you can have that grown up conversation that says, well, everybody is in, actually, we're all trying to do this together, then you really empower people to, to make more positive changes, I think.
3: Are there any ideas kicking around about taking it out of party politics, having an apolitical figure In charge of this, who is kind of visible to the public?
4: The COVID discussions are quite interesting for this, aren't they? You know, you think when we used to have a politician and a scientist together on a platform, over 50% trust advice they get from the government, but the the group they trust the highest is scientists. So that kind of mix is is a nice one to put in front. And again, I think you've got to have government there, I think, to communicate that the government is also doing something. But a scientific figure clearly is, is helpful. I also think it's fair to say, you know, the, the UK has done pretty well as a, in terms of cross-party consensus on this. This is not a single-party issue. All the major parties going into the, the last election were were aligned in terms of delivering net zero. So I think we're lucky in the UK we have that more than some other countries. And I think, again, that maybe is a platform that you can you can use more. I don't know if you remember, last last time I was on, Ed was talking about doing a um, cross-party broadcast on this where he would join oh, up with Oh, yes, our chair, yes, he was, wasn't he? Demon, uh, yeah. And they were going to have a, a vegan burger and they were going to have a vegan bacon sandwich. Yep. We still haven't made that happen.
3: I'll nag him about it. He, he tends to be quite sensitive around the subject of um, bacon sandwiches, but he, he brought it up. Well, Mike, thanks for taking the time to talk to us again. Mike Thompson from Climate Change Committee. Thank you.
4: Thank you, Jeff.
2: Now, having talked about the context of individual behaviour, we can now dive in a bit more detail into some of the things that individuals might be able to do. And I'd like to say that we're joined by Tom Bailey, who is co-founder of Take the Jump. Tom, thanks so much for joining us. No problem.
5: Lovely to be here, Ed. Tell us what is Take the Jump. Yeah, Take the Jump is a fairly new uh, citizen community climate movement, and we have a catchphrase, leading the way to less stuff and more joy. And it's based on some leading research that shows that citizens and communities can deliver directly 27% of the change needed to avoid ecological breakdown over the next 10 years. So of the change needed across the whole world economy over the next 10 years, Communities and citizens can directly deliver, and that's an important point, directly deliver 27% of the change needed. And that's through six shifts that the science really clearly pulls out. And and when people take the jump, they try those shifts for uh, at least a month. That's it in a, in a very quick nutshell.
2: And Tom, does this mean that every member of the world population, the British population has to do these things?
5: Yeah, it's particularly rich countries. as I'm sure we all know that the vast majority of the impact, particularly from the point of view of consumption, and we don't just mean personal consumption here, we mean industrial consumption, government consumption. It's the rich countries that, that are having most of the impact, obviously. I think the research kind of shows that historically, when you have big shifts in, in societal Kind of norms and behavior and so on. That's, that's catalyzed when you, when you get at least 25% of the population doing something, thinking differently and being sustained and clear in that new way of doing things. You know, the work that this is all based on is a big study. It took two years. These university, Arab C40, pioneering study looked at the global economy. It's one of the first times that ever there's been a worldwide analysis of the whole economy rather than looking at territorial jurisdictions, which is normally how you do it by looking globally at the whole economy you can really unpick these big trends in a in a much more robust way, and this research completely was transformative,
2: so it requires everybody, yes, but you think that if you can get to a quarter of people, then everybody flips and follows and comes with you. okay, that's the sort of evidence. What's the six lifestyle shifts that you're recommending?
5: It's eat green, dress retro, travel fresh. Holiday local, end clutter, and change the system. And to give an example, holiday local is to keep the number of flights that we go on to one return flight, short haul, every three years, long haul every eight years. Now, that might sound like, whoa, that's quite a big change, right? But if you think about most of the people in the world, that's a massive increase. Okay, so that's that's an equitable number that we can all sort of land on that allows us to stay within global carbon budgets. And you can still see the world in your lifetime, right? You can still go to every continent. You can still interact with other cultures plenty. It's just about getting a balance. Another one is dress retro. So recognizing that the impact uh, textiles has and fast fashion, get this, the average American buys 50 new items of clothing a year, is bought in America on average. So that's like one a week. So what this is saying, um, this shift, the, the evidence shows we need to get to three new items of clothing a year is a target. So recycling, secondhand, sharing, renting, all that good stuff. And you can still look great. What are the others? So eat green, unsurprisingly, mostly plant-based and eat everything you buy. So don't waste food. Mostly plant-based or exclusively is what you're saying? Mostly. So you don't have to go exclusively. So the other three end clutter is to keep our electronics and our products for at least seven years. So phones, mobiles, uh, laptops, try and keep them as long as you can. Obviously, with planned obsolescence and batteries that die early, that's not always easy, um, but it's about doing your best. And then travel fresh is trying to minimize private vehicle ownership. You know, if we just swap from fossil fuel vehicles to electric vehicles and we keep that growth going at the same rate, then that's still an enormously damaging impact to the environment. What we really need is less cars on the road. That's crucial if you look at the, the future projections for environmental impact. So that means walking, cycling, public transport, and crucially, car sharing and car renting. So the first five I've just talked about, they represent the kind of the things that we have direct control over. So if everybody does that, and, and you know the numbers are clear, everybody eventually does need to do this. Within 10 years, this is what to meet our carbon budgets. So that's our goal, right? It's those five. But then what about the system change bit? And that's where we invite people to do at least one thing that can influence the world around them, like swap to green energy supplier. That's how you could influence green energy markets. Change your pension to a green pension supplier. That's how the normal person can interface with financial markets. Or if you can afford to, um, retrofit your home. Now, we don't put retrofitting people's homes into the things that are in the first buckets because that's really it's such an expensive thing to do that for most people, it's not something we can ask everybody to do without some real government help.
2: That's a very comprehensive list of the recommendations. I mean, there's lots of questions that will obviously occur to people, and, and some people might find some of them easier than others. How do you counter though the idea that this sounds like basically hair shirt ism? <laughs> yeah, you know that this is basically. You shouldn't travel abroad as much. So the foreign holiday that you really value, having worked hard all year, is going to be more difficult to do. You can't buy new clothes. You've got to eat in a certain way. For some people, Tom, that's it's going to sound not that attractive.
5: Yeah, do we have to go back to living in a cave, give up everything I enjoy about my life? Like, we we hear that, um, you know, that's often the question that people ask me. And the answer is no for two reasons. One, it's not about complete abstinence, this. We're not saying you can't fly at all. We can still go and see a world. You can still look great. You can still eat great food with all of this. But it's about balance, this. It's not about complete abstinence, which I think is a really important point, okay? Um, And the second point is that actually a world that isn't just about the consumption of more and more and more stuff, would actually be better, okay? So yes, we're consuming slightly less by taking the jump, right? But that means there's so much more time for other things like creativity, care, comedy, culture, all these things that actually make life good. The world that we're taking a jump to is a world where people and planet are at the center, right? Where where all these other things that make human life worthwhile can be the focus. Let's ask you about lying then.
2: I mean, if you work hard all year round and one of the things that you really look forward to is is going abroad on a foreign holiday. Yeah. You're saying, well, you can only do that once every three years, or you could take the train, but that could be more expensive or it's just not practical. I'll be honest with you. I worry that that's going to not win people to our cause, but
5: sort of lose people to our cause. It's a very good point. And, one of the things we've got to really learn from the environment movement of the past, right, is that waving our fingers, shaming people, telling them that what you're doing right now is bad is not only not helpful, it's not the right thing to do. It's not true. We all grew up in this world, right, like that's like this. We've got very good reason to, to enjoy going to Spain or, or Greece or wherever every summer, right? And so the behavior change science that the jump is based on has these five foundations. But if the shifts of what taking the jump is, these foundations define how and how to approach it. And the very first one, and they're based on lots of, of research over the last 30 years. The very first one is it's enough just to try. So just start. Start where you are and start to make a, a journey from, where, from what's possible, right? But the other side of the coin to that is no more us and them, right? That's the second foundation. Shaming each other and ourselves doesn't work. And if, you want, if we want to change, we have to excite ourselves and others about what we could be rather than demonising ourselves where we are, right? And then let's just talk about the sort of bigger picture for a minute, which is
2: um, the role of government and the role of the individual. In other words, is this putting too much onus on the individual to change their personal behaviour rather than banks to divest from fossil fuels or governments to build
5: onshore wind farms or whatever it is? Yeah, excellent point again. And I think there's... One of the, the key sort of um, phrases that came out of that research was that we need all action from all actors now. There isn't time, if you look at the rate of change needed, to be like, OK, you go first. Government needs to act and then citizens will pick up the, the slack in a bit. And everybody needs to be doing all the things they can. And so you see that 27 percent. That's the chunk that sits, you know, that citizens and communities can be getting on with government and industry have a, an enormous chunk that they need to be getting on with. And the big question is, right, is how do, how do the train meet, right? You know, if you actually look at, at what the change that's needed in the next 10 years, the research showed we need a two-third reduction in the impact of all consumption in rich countries in 10 years. Two-third reduction. And so that's a fundamental shift in the way our societies work and operate, right? A, away from one that's focused just on production and consumption. And so how do we get that? Cristina Figueres, who led the um, the climate change cop negotiations cop 21 in paris she said recently i think this week in the guardian that it's not technology and finance shift that's the most urgently needed it's mindset shift and the reason for that is that if you think about any of the big transitions of the past the scientific revolution the industrial revolution the overthrow of colonialism civil rights gender rights gay rights none of these things started in the head of an enlightened leader who was like i know what we need is this we figured out what to do and told everybody The change didn't start at the system level. It started at the mindset and the cultural, the community and the individual level. We had a lot of people coming together, decided we need to do things differently. This is how the world could be. This is how it looks and feels. And it's brilliant. And then that creates the kind of momentum and the space for the system change, you know, the education, the economics, the politics, the infrastructure. And then that then reinforces the culture and you get this positive cycle.
2: Let's talk about the sort of transmission mechanisms. I mean, is one of the challenges you face that individuals find it hard to relate their specific actions to this massive problem. It's a bit like the voting the issue of, you know, does my vote make a difference? But maybe it's got some additional challenge, which is, you know, what's the transmission mechanism between me buying fewer pairs of clothes and global warming?
5: Yeah. Well, there's two two main response is that the first is just to acknowledge the scale of appetite for this you know 80% of people now are worried about climate change they already are aware of it now want to do something but feel powerless and feel confused like you say okay if i save one ton of carbon by getting one less plane so what in a world of the fossil fuel industry and inaction from governments and so on what how does that have any meaning and it has meaning in two ways you know the first is this 27% you know that is numerical evidence we are not powerless. We can deliver 27% if we do this together. And the second is that by coming together in communities, experimenting with new ways of doing things and, and showing what that future could look like, you then enable the transition. I mean, there's a really famous phrase. If you want to change culture, you have to throw a better party, right? You have to You have to not just tell stories. You have to be the story. And that's what The Jump is doing. It's bringing people all around the world, in New Zealand, several groups in America and in Australia and UK, and expanding to other places, to start exploring it and telling that story.
2: I guess that's the point, isn't it? Because I'm thinking about the voting thing. Like, if people are persuaded to vote, but then their party doesn't win, they haven't made a big sacrifice. Whereas some of the things you're talking about, people might see them as quite big sacrifices. And if they see that and then they think, well, hang on, if I do that and all these other things carry on, the fossil fuel industry and so on, have I made this big sacrifice for no overall gain that's your point about it's got to be a a better offer
5: yeah exactly and it is and so like that's although it may feel like a sacrifice it's a joyous alternative that we're talking about moving to there's large parts of society who are fighting to put food on the table who had very little role in creating this climate mess right who frankly you know and we've heard this a lot it's not my job to fix the problem you made, right? There are other parts of society that are really, you know, the, I don't know if you know the Britain Talks Climate Research, looks at all the different typologies of, of where people are on climate change. And at one end, you've got the 13% who are really pushing already, the committed activists. And at the other end, you've got people who've got other things on their plate. In the middle, you've got this third, care about climate change, but culturally, I'm not. An, when they hear the word environmentalist, greeny, activism, they're like, that's not me. There's people in the middle, and that's who we're wanting to, to work with here, who, if we get enough on board, could then catalyze that whole shift of society.
2: Well, look, Tom, if, if people want to know more about Take the Jump, where do they go?
5: So it's org, our website, expanding... In the UK, so there's groups all around the country, so you can get involved with a local group. And if you want to take the jump, you can sign up on our website and then you will be connected to this whole community of people. We've got workshops, trainings, events. And
2: just to be clear about this, it's like an a la carte menu. It's not a fixed it's not a fixed menu. You don't have to do all of it, you just can do some of it.
5: You don't even have to do them all perfectly. It's just it's not about we, we don't we never ask someone, Did you do them right? Or did you did you have a beef burger last week? You know. Like it's not about that. It's about getting on this journey and doing our best and moving forward bit by bit.
2: Tom Bailey, uh, co-founder of Take the Jump. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Ed. Take care. Well, it was an unusual format for interviews because we sort of did it. Tag team, I think we call it. Tag team wrestling. Big Daddy. You're Big Daddy and I'm Giant Haystacks.
3: I mean, this is another one of these things where we're going to sound ancient talking about Big Daddy, Giant Haystacks. So,
2: okay, enough about the tag team. So what did you think about the interview?
3: I actually thought back a lot. Listening to the interviews, to the conversation we had on our previous episode with Anand Giridas, the bonus episode about persuading people. I do, having been a vegetarian for so long and had so many conversations about meat with people, think it, it, it's emotional for people for some reason. And similarly, I think flying is a, a difficult conversation to ha- have with people who. Feel that they work very hard and it's their one kind of treat in a year to go and get some guaranteed sunshine. Yeah,
2: I I agree with you on that, honestly. I mean, look, there's two things I feel about this, which is one, we are in the better lives business and we can't define for people what better lives are. In other words, people have to be able to self author their definition of better lives. And Yes, we do need to tackle flying. Aviation emissions have got to be part of net zero and all of that. But I think if we give the sense to people that we're saying to them, you can't go on your holiday. Honestly, I just genuinely think it's a non-starter. Look, giving people information about all of these things is fine. Uh, the, The second point I just really want to make, which I really feel strongly about, is... I worry about looking like you're loading all of this onto the individual. You know, there's this phrase which is an inelegant phrase, but structural change makes possible individual change. So, in other words, even when it's things that are about individuals, if you want people to, you know, buy an electric car or use alternatives to cars, you've got to give them the means of good public transport or the ability to purchase an electric car even if they're not rich. If you want people to change the way they heat their homes, you've got to make it affordable for people, you know, all of those things. It's not, it doesn't exist in some vacuum. That's not to say that the individual, what individuals do is irrelevant, it isn't irrelevant, people can set good examples and so on, but I think you've got to be really careful in this area.
1: Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast.
2: Whoa, we're in the outro. Can I just say, you are looking hot.
3: I'm very flattered that you say that because uh, I'm currently hairless of face. I had a shaving accident yesterday. My beard and moustache had got very bushy and I was trying to level out the moustache, but I over-leveled it. Leveling up. <laughs> level. Yes, that's what I was trying to do. And, and it just, it, it started to look a bit weird. It almost looked Fuhrer like So I thought, I need to take the whole thing off. And um, my face is on display, the whole of it, for the first time in I don't know how long.
2: You honestly look younger, much younger. You look like a younger version of Kenneth Branagh. Seriously.
3: Wow. I wonder if this connection isn't very good and I'm quite pixelated.
2: Uh, Yeah, you're on on no video. (laughs) (laughs) Uh.
3: Should we thank our guests?
2: I'd like to thank Alyssa Gilbert, Mike Thompson and Tom Bailey.
3: Emma Corsham is our audio producer. Rachel Barmer is our content producer supported by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish Get Loft S as our announcer Ed Seed composed music James Deacon made our eye dance, and our artwork was designed by Henry recall. Well you're off for more copping Yep When are you copping off?
2: He's been Jeff Lloyd
3: <laughs> He's been Ed Miliband
0: And these have been reasons to be cheerful